This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord, you know us in our inmost being, and yet you were not ashamed to call us your brothers and sisters. We pray that we would always find our honor in our union with you and in belonging to your body, and that we would never be ashamed to confess you before the world and to call everyone to come and see your glory. Amen. You may be seated. So whether we're aware of it or not, we've been living through the convulsions of a quiet revolution for over 12 years. Because on June 29, 2007, the first iPhone was released. I did find out, actually, that the first smartphone, Simon, was created by IBM in 1992, technically. But the iPhone was the first widely available mass-marketed smartphone. So a few years ago, I rewatched the crime movie, The Departed, and it came out in 2006. It's crazy to see all this intrigue carried out with flip phones. I mean, the whole premise of the movie doesn't even make sense anymore. If you've seen it, Jack Nicholson and uh, Matt Damon would have been caught immediately before the action started, just on the basis of smartphone technology alone. And this week I read a fascinating New York Times article about Madonna at age 60. Now, I've mentioned many times before that I grew up in the 90s, the greatest decade, and it was the second consecutive decade in which Madonna was on the top of her game. What's interesting about this essay in the New York Times is the insight it gives into the impact that the smartphone revolution has had on Madonna personally. See, in the 80s and 90s, you couldn't tweet a snarky comment at Madonna. You couldn't even send her an email. If you wanted to bask in her glory or you wanted to protest her sexual provocativeness, you had to go where she was going to be. You had to show up. And so throughout those decades, wherever Madonna went, she was mobbed by crowds of paparazzi and adoring fans and jeering haters. But she had her entourage with her, and she would put on her poker face and walk past all that. And she kept a single-minded focus on the one thing that mattered at all to her, which is being the queen of pop. But the author goes on to say that now, in the social media era, the Greek chorus she had blocked out was seeping in, saying she was too old. Too washed up, too out of ideas, finished. And here's what Madonna says. It's not that I engage with it, but it ends up going in front of your eyes. And then when it goes in front of your eyes, it's inside your head. It comes up in your feed, and then you get pulled into it whether you like it or not. So it's a challenge to rise above it, to not be affected by it, to not get frustrated, to not compare, to not feel judged, to not be hurt. You know, it's a test. And she concludes poignantly, I preferred life before the phone. So this is a little window into what's going on in our cultural moment. Now, I'm not for a minute interested in denying all the benefits that smartphones have introduced into our society. (coughs) Excuse me. But as a pastor, I'm interested in the unintended consequences of this technology for Christian discipleship and for evangelism. Smartphones have pulled us out of our material environments, out of our bodies, really, and have plunged us into digital worlds and virtual conversations. Such as in my friend Greg Howe, who's high up in InterVarsity, recently posted a striking photo that was taken by an Ivy staff worker who's ministering on a college campus in California. And the photo showed the main walkway that cuts through the campus. It's a broad, tree-lined promenade that was once filled with students talking. People doing direct democracy, 
passing out flyers, engaged in political activism. There was bustle. Sometimes it was buzz and, and even frenzy. And now the walkway is dead silent and empty. And that picture was so striking because the benches that line the entire walkway each have one single student sitting on them, staring at a glowing screen. And Greg says, the walkway a few years ago would have been filled with students sitting together, talking, relating. This generation, alienated, isolated, anxious, depressed. Pray InterVarsity USA can introduce them to Jesus and community. Alienated, isolated, anxious, depressed, that's an accurate summary of some of the downstream effects of the digital revolution that researchers are seeing. Social media has ironically pushed us to even greater heights of individualism than we knew before. Because these screens hold our attention and they're engineered to do that. The screens give us a sense that we're living in an augmented reality, which some have called hyper-reality. It's a more saturated, more intense, more streamlined experience of life than analog life offers us. And because this hyper-reality holds our attention, we listen to the voices there more readily than the voices in the analog world. And precisely because of the attention we give to the digital rather than the analog, there's this other unexpected phenomenon that's accompanied the smartphone revolution. Shame has become a major identity-shaping factor and a major focus in our public discourse, perhaps as never before in the West. You look at Instagram and all your friends are doing, your friends, right, are doing amazing things, having amazing experiences. They're having so much fun. They're looking unbelievably bright and happy with their selfie sticks. You know, they're on the beach on vacation and they look so bright and tanned and cut, you know. They're climbing mountains in Argentina or whatever, and you're like, my life is so drab and ordinary. And you're ashamed. What's wrong with me, do you think? And guess what? In the digital age, the message is this. It's your fault. You don't have rock-hard abs? It's because you're not disciplined enough. You're not having the time of your life every night? It's because you're not funny or interesting enough. Nobody likes you. Your kids haven't turned out the way you wanted? It's your fault. You suck as a parent. You didn't use the right parenting technique. You were too distracted. You weren't spiritual enough. You didn't even know when or how to say the right thing. And you're ashamed. You get on Twitter and you express your opinion about something. And someone you don't even know and you've never met jumps on and says your view is problematic. It's everybody's favorite word on Twitter. And it gets a bazillion likes. And you feel ashamed. You've been exposed. You're on the wrong side of history. I just heard that one recently. You've been called out. You've been canceled. Over 30 years ago, Martin Marty, way before social media, already saw America as a place in which everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. And that's a trend that has been increased by an order of magnitude in the digital age. Everything is permitted until you cross the taboo line and then it's over for you, son. No warnings, no grace. The digital social universe is simultaneously completely anarchic and severely and unforgivingly black and white. So shame has become a crucial driver in the digital age. But it's a shame of a different flavor than in traditional or communal societies because it's driven by isolation. But it's shame nonetheless. Some have called it 
cancel culture or call out culture, but we should call it what it is. It's a new kind of shame honor culture. Now, honor, quite simply, is the word for the worth, value, prestige, and reputation which an individual claims and which is acknowledged publicly by others. The Greeks called it time, and it referred originally to the price or value of something, but it also came to refer to the esteem in which one was held or the public recognition that others gave to you. In terms of our culture, then, we might describe honor as the public value of our personal brand. That's what honor looks like in the digital age. In this new shame-honor culture, our eyes are constantly scanning for what others think of us, and we're measuring ourselves according to their perceptions. Even though our phones pull us out of the analog world, this shame enters through our bodies. Remember that quote from Madonna earlier? It comes in through your eyes, but then once it's in your eyes, it's in your brain. The voices are in your head. Shame is entered through your body, and our anxiety spikes and our cortisol levels rise as we wonder whether we're going to be honored with likes or whether we're going to be shamed by some skewering and savage comment. Or worse yet, what if we're totally ignored? In a shame-honor culture, to not be honored is to be damned to a kind of non-existence. Now this is new territory for us as Westerners. But it is not new territory for Scripture. In fact, it's my contention this morning that we're now in a better position, actually, to be able to understand what St. Paul is saying to us as he rebukes the Corinthian church in our reading today. Shame is something that the Bible is deeply concerned with. And particularly, the Bible is deeply concerned with God's ability to meet us in our shame and to clothe us with his honor. Simon Chan in his book, Grassroots Asian Theology, awesome book, underscores this point by drawing our attention to the fact that shame is mentioned 300 times in the Old Testament and 45 times in the New. Now, for your own personal reference, guilt is mentioned 145 times in the Old Testament and 10 times in the New. Now, clearly, these are both important themes, but I raise this point to draw your attention to this one fact. Western scholarship has basically completely failed to address shame and honor as major motifs in the Bible, despite their prominence. And this is in large part because of the historic culture of the West. Now, scholars used to say that modern Western societies were different from traditional societies because they were not driven by shame and honor, but by guilt and innocence. Now, traditional societies, speaking in general terms now, are communal rather than individualistic, and identity is conferred by participating in communal structures. Honor, which is closely associated with personal dignity and dignity for your people or your network, comes from fulfilling your obligations within those structures or through excellent actions that distinguish you from your peers. You got that? Honor comes as you fulfill your obligations within the communal structures or as you distinguish yourself through excellent actions. Now, scholars typically talk about honor being conveyed in these sorts of societies in two ways. Now, honor, first off, can be ascribed. That means you get honor from the status you possess as a member of an honorable family or having an honorable profession. But honor can also be acquired through excellent or admirable series of actions, like becoming a patron or becoming attached to the right patron or through displays of rhetorical or athletic prowess. Now, this is crucial. When societies are stable, Ascribed honor, that's the honor that comes from belonging to the right family or the right network or having the right job, 
has a great prominence. But when societies are in transition, when they become destabilized, acquired honor becomes everything. The way that you can distinguish yourself from your peers is the way that you achieve honor in those contexts. And so within these traditional cultures, shame comes from the failure to perform your responsibilities or from the failure to distinguish yourself. It comes from your own personal failure or it comes from not being noticed at all. So 1 Corinthians is a book that comes into focus for us when we come to it looking for the themes of shame and honor. Corinth in Paul's day was a city in transition. It was not stable. And so its citizens were anxious for influence and they were seeking in every way to distinguish themselves and to acquire honor for their families and for their networks. A century just before Paul came with the news of the gospel and planted a church in that city, the city was conquered by the Romans. And when they conquered it, they didn't just defeat the people, they razed it to the ground and they rebuilt it entirely as a Roman colony. So everything was brand new. All of the networks were shaken up and in transition. And it was also located at a major mercantile crossroads. And so economically, it blossomed very rapidly. So there's a huge amount of transition going on in the city. There's not an established social order. And so there's very little ascribed honor. Now remember, that's the honor that comes from belonging to the right family or the right networks or or having the right job, that kind of stuff. There's a lot of vying and rivalry. And everyone is eager to acquire honor, to build up their family name, to distinguish themselves from those around them through excellent actions. Now to be thought of well, to have a good reputation, to be seen with the right people, to have the right connections, all of these things brought honor and the absence of these things brought shame. So we can kind of imagine the Corinthians sitting around snapping tons of selfies with celebrities and throwing it up on Instagram like, hashtag so hot right now. I jest. But really, despite massive cultural and technological differences, there's this huge amount of overlap between the Corinth of Paul's day and our own digital era. The longing of our hearts to be noticed, to have honor and status, and the shame and the loss of faith when we don't receive that, all exacerbated by online life, all of that would have resonated with the Corinthians. Deep calls out to deep, the psalmist says. Technology and civilization... Civilizations change, but the longings of the human heart remain the same. Our hearts are restless. They're filled with immortal longings. But these longings for influence and worth led the Corinthians in the wrong direction. It led them in the direction of competition and faction and rivalry, blood feuds. Now the Corinthian church had ostensibly left all of this vanity behind when they were baptized. They were given a new identity in Jesus Christ by being grafted into his body, the church. They weren't noticed by the world, but it it didn't matter. Christ saw them and validated them. Christ gave them dignity. They had been known fully by Christ, even as they were fully known. Psalm 139, we prayed it this morning. It says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You knew me in my own mother's womb as I was being knit together. They learned they cannot flee from his spirit, which searches them out and knows their innermost being. They learned that there's no escape from the presence of God, but that that's a good thing because they also learned that Christ was for them and he had given them a new identity and a new and immortal honor. And he'd done that by including them in his family, the church, He had given them an inheritance which no one could take from them and by giving them a hope in the resurrection. 
The one who knew them better than they knew themselves was not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. i got to ask you this morning, do you know that Christ who has searched your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters? Do you know what a matchless gift it is to belong to this family, the church? Do you know that he came that you might have an inheritance which no one can take from you? That gift is yours, my friends. St. Paul tells the Corinthians, remember what life was like when Christ came and called you. Not many of you were wise by human standards, he says. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, not many of you were honorable by the, words, by the world's standards when you were called. Most of you were nothing in the world's eyes. But then Christ came and he gave you an unshakable, immortal honor greater than any honor the world could ever ascribe to you because you belong to the household of God. The message of both of the letters to the Corinthians can be summed up from one vantage by a single sentence. Christians, remember your dignity. This is not a minor thing. This is the whole thing. This is what the whole Christian life is about. If we know we have honor that no one can take from us and that we didn't earn, we can honor those that the world will not honor. I'll tell you what the world honors. The world honors education. The world honors ability. The world honors charisma. The world honors achievements. But the gospel that St. Paul preaches says that the parts of the body that the world thinks are less honorable, we treat with greater honor. 1 Corinthians 12, 22. Check it out. What's this look like at Ascension? We honor our children with a special time in the front of the whole congregation. You heard them sing this morning. They led us in worship. How beautiful was that? We honor them with a space in a Sunday school that's designed with their learning needs in mind. We honor our youth with dedicated spaces and times together and with mentoring relationships with older and wiser Christians. We honor our friends with special needs with the Wings Ministry and Capernaum Club. You know who's, who saw that need, the need to honor that population in our midst? It was the great Christina Carlucci Wilson, memory eternal. Praise God for her. Praise God for Kira Fiener, who keeps that ministry alive and strong and growing. We honor our international friends. We give them hospitality, and we help them to learn English. We treat with special honor what the world regards as having less honor because we know Jesus has seen and called each one of these friends. He knows their names, and he has called them by their names. And when we are really paying attention to the honor that Jesus gives us, we will do this all the more. With greater verve, with greater energy, with greater gusto. And when we forget this honor, guess what? It becomes all about us again. What is the public value of our personal brand? That's the question we start to ask. We need to have an audience of one if we're going to remember our dignity and be able to give dignity to others. Here's the thing. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians and what he's also saying to us is that everything depends on what you're paying attention to. Who is your audience? The Corinthians stop listening to the voice of Jesus who says, I have given you dignity and status and honor and my family. Pay attention to me. 
I am the only one worthy of your attention. They have started to see those who baptize them as a kind of prestigious patron whose teachings they follow. Some say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollo. Some say, I follow Cephas. And then factions have opened up within the body of Christ. And so Paul is saying, there is no kind, there is no place for this kind of rivalry in the body of Christ. And you have revealed that you're no longer paying attention to Jesus because these factions are opening up among you. Whoever baptized you, whoever discipled you, it was baptism and discipleship into Jesus. And hey, if Christ is not being formed in you, who does it matter who your teacher is? Why does that matter at all? All that matters is Christ. There is only one thing necessary to live in the honor and the dignity that Christ has given us. But for the Corinthians, the honor that Jesus had given them had stopped making an impression on them. The temptation is always there to seek honor and glory from more visceral sources. Paul is telling them that they've fallen into that trap and they've revealed that because they're fracturing into parties. And these schisms are erupting because both as individuals and as a body, they've stopped paying attention to the status and the dignity and the worth which they have in Christ. They have succumbed to the anxiety that the honor that Christ has given them by including them in his family is not enough. As Mother Tish has put it, When we gaze at the richness of the gospel and the church and we find them dull and uninteresting, it's actually we who have been hollowed out. We've lost our capacity to see wonders where true wonders lie. The glory of the gospel, of this new and immortal honor which Jesus has clothed us with, he's clothed us in our shame with this new gospel. That gospel is always leaking out of us. Sinners have hearts that are like leaky sieves. We receive grace upon grace from the Lord, but if we fail to cultivate and sustain our attention to that grace, it drains right out of us. And we return for validation to those same sources which have already dramatically and woefully failed us. We know that those sources can never satisfy. Why do we keep going back? Because the grace leaks out of us. And so the counsel of Scripture is always to wake up to Christ's presence and to cultivate the interior disposition of undivided attention, of listening to the Holy Spirit as he forms Christ in us. Because if we're not constantly giving our attention to Christ through the Spirit, if we aren't putting on this honor, his honor will very quickly come to seem unreal to us. We'll look at it and we'll think, We will not see it as something precious and so infinitely beyond our ability to acquire that it can only be given as a gift. It can only be given as an inheritance. That's how it was for the Corinthians and that's how it will be for us too. Everything hinges on what we're paying attention to. But our trouble is we live in what many have called an attention economy. Your attention is the thing you're paying out in your transactions with social media companies and with all that clickbait you clicked on last week. Come on, you know you did. I did. These companies are vying for ways to hold your attention and to pitch you different experiences and products. So the question for us is, are we going to be satisfied with a cheap, ephemeral honor that we can get on social media? Or will we strive to live in the immortal honor and inheritance that only Jesus can give us? These devices are powerful tools And they are powerful distractions and powerful culture shapers. But guess what? 
None of this causes Jesus the least anxiety. He called you and me to live in the digital age before the foundations of the earth. And he saw this moment as he was held aloft upon the cross. He has called us to live faithfully in this age and not to run away from it. And so you and I must forge a path together through this technological wilderness. And this is not hopeless. I want to stress that. We have the Holy Spirit who makes Christ present to us in every age. And guess what? That includes the digital age. The Spirit has not left the church. This cultural moment is not only a challenge, it is a tremendous opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ. What if the church could become a space in which we lived in the honor that Christ has given us and which is our immortal inheritance? What would it look like? I'll tell you what it would look like. It would look like the fruit of the Spirit growing up, prevailing over our sinful passions. It would look like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control prevailing. It would look like those who are without honor finding honor here. It would look more like us living fully into that calling. Look, I don't know about you, but that would be a community to which I could point and say to my anguished and isolated friends, come and see. My guess is that's true for you too. Last night we held a second Kids in Tech event because we want parents thinking theologically about this technology. And we want to give very practical counsel about how to, how to help kids love the analog world of God's creation more than the hyper-reality of the digital world. But all of us need to take this challenge seriously. It is a challenge. We need to learn to practice what John Mark Cormer has called a digital asceticism. We need to develop rules and helpful strategies to limit the influence of these devices in our life, not to get rid of them altogether. We wouldn't be able to live in this age if we were to abandon them altogether. But we need to learn how to do this. I don't know how to do it. I'm asking for us to do this together, to live as the community of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to help each other. Let's spur one another on, not to greater factionalism and rivalry, not to greater isolation, but to live in the honor that Jesus has given us as his community. Because Christians, you have such great dignity. Christ has filled you with his grace by the power of his Holy Spirit, and he has made you his family, and he has given you the eternal inheritance of the resurrection of the dead. May we all grow to live more fully in that reality. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.